0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium, with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to thank my latest subscriber on Patreon, thank you Yanis, for his support, and all my other Patreon supporters. If you would like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash amic on the podium, and there you'll find many ways to subscribe, plus extra bonus material and episodes to enjoy. You can also support the show by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, which is greatly appreciated and will help the podcast reach a much bigger audience. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Swiss conductor who came to conducting relatively late, but has definitely made up for lost time. He has been a principal conductor or music director in Japan, Brazil, the Netherlands, the United States and the United Kingdom. It's a pleasure to welcome Thierry Fischer. Thierry, real pleasure to speak with you today. Great to be with you too, Mike. Um, At the very beginning, how did music first come into your life? You were born in Africa, is that right? Yeah, I was born in Zambia.
1: And I didn't do any music there for the six or seven first years of my life. And we came back to Geneva, Switzerland, when I was nearly seven years old. And I was of course a very turbulent uh, little boy (laughs) and uh, I'm not coming from a musical family at all. And my mother just thought that I should be occupied instead of going in the street on the Thursday, which was at the time the, the free day at school in Switzerland. So she just put me out of the blue just to the local music school uh, to To learn the um, recorder. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way I started. But something amazing happened is that I realized the very first time I did put the recorder, you know, on my lips,
0: mm-hmm.
1: honestly, it's many, many, many years ago, but I remember this moment like a miraculous one. <laughs> I, I can still feel the taste of the wood on my lips and the feeling it had on my entire body to produce a sound, just blowing some air into this piece of wood. It was something that I have never forgotten and which was like, I mean, I was seven years old, but it was something that opened in me, even for a child, a kind of very positive vibe.
0: That's amazing, isn't it? That you can remember that so clearly. Um, I have vague pictures of the very beginnings of me playing the violin, but I don't remember things quite as clearly as that. Um, And I'm assuming therefore, from the recorder, you went on to the flute. How long was the gap between starting the recorder and then going on to the flute?
1: I was in that local music school for three years. Mm. And then at the age of 10, we moved back to Africa for one year to Ivory Coast, to uh, Abidjan. And there um, I took also some piano lessons. And there was no recorded teacher. Mm. So I just took piano and I played recorder for fun. And then the director of the conservatory in Abidjan, can you believe that? <laughs> was a French man. Yeah. And we started to chat. And then he found out that I was playing the recorder. He said, oh, would you mind just playing a little bit, you know, a little sonata for me just to see it's interesting. And so I remember I played him the sonata for, by Jean-Baptiste Leuillet, the mm. French composer. And a few weeks later, he contacted my parents and said, you know, we have this national orchestra of Ivory Coast, which I conduct <laughs> and we, we make two concerts a year, one, for Christmas and one in May or whatever. And I would love Thierry to play the Jean-Baptiste Leuyer sonata. And I made an orchestration with, with some strings and that'd be great. And we said, that'd be great indeed. Yeah, and wonderful. So this was my first concert. I was 10, ten and a half years old. And I um, I played in, in, the, in a big posh hotel in, in Abidjan. The Jean-Baptiste Lully sonata with an orchestra—that that was special—and then we came back to um, to Geneva, Switzerland, where I started to play the flute.
0: And then uh, I'm assuming you, uh, up until conservatoire level, you're playing in orchestras at all, or wind bands, or groups and ensembles. Sure, I was rather
1: active here in Switzerland during my studies playing. I was. Um, an extra player for Swiss Ramon Orchestra and uh, with different orchestras, accompanying choirs in Switzerland. And then I went, uh, after the Conservatoire in Geneva, I went to the um, Hochschule für Musik in Freiburg, in Breisgau, Germany, yeah, yeah. where I studied with Aurel Nicole. I was so lucky to be able to study with him. He was like a musical father for, for all his students. And um, and then after this, I got my first job in Hamburg in the Hamburg Philharmonic, North Germany.
0: And which conductors would you do you remember? I mean, uh, you may or may not know. I played in the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra for twenty-two years. In fact, I played for you. Um, I, I remember from my early times in the orchestra. Later on, less so, but those v- few first few years. Can you remember who condu- came and conducted the Hamburg Philharmonic?
1: Sure. Uh, we had two. Conductors. We had uh, Christoph von Dornani mm. for the opera and we had Aldo Cecato for the symphony concerts, you know, yeah. these, these orchestras in, in Germany, they have two different, like the Vienna Philharmonic, yes. they play opera is their daily life, and they have 12 concerts a year or something. So, and they had two different conductors at this time. Yeah. So I remember I enjoyed playing with both of them very much. With Dornani, you know, I was very young. I was 24 years old, even less, 22, 23 years old. I was absolutely stunned by a notion I never experienced before. is the intellectualism of being a conductor, which, Mm. of course, we should forget and especially not show or explain to anybody. (laughs) Mm. But, I mean, his way of rehearsing and to performing is such a cultivated, incredibly... Um, clever and musical conductor was something very, something sophisticated, I would never have imagined only playing the flutes. So that was, Mm. was, and we played, you know, when you arrive in an opera orchestra in Germany, from one day to the other, you have to be able to play, I don't know, 50 or 60 operas without rehearsals, just Mm. like that.
0: Yes, because they're all in the repertoire, aren't they, from, yeah, yeah. yeah, you can get the job having never played the magic flute, but you're expected to know how to play it on their rehearsal. I was sitting a lot in the pit
1: without playing. Mm. Uh, I was sitting next to my colleague, next to the other principal flute, and I was observing conductors a lot. That's why I could, you know, find things in his conducting, which was really fascinating for me.
0: Mm. Um, And then on to Zurich Opera, and also, I'm assuming at the same time, Principal Flute of Chamber Orchestra of Europe. And at no point yet, and we're now well into a very, very successful flute career, at no point yet have you mentioned you actually conducting. Um, Was it ever a thought before your, uh, I read in your biography, before your 30s, when all of a sudden it changed, was it ever a thought to do it? Or were you just happy being uh, a principal flute? Well, the... The best answer is yes to both questions. Right. I was
1: very, very happy as a flute player. Um, At the Zurich Opera, I had a special contract. In in German, we say "mit Harnoncourt Verpflichtung," which is with Harnoncourt obligation. So, (laughs) yeah, every time Harnoncourt was conducting the orchestra, I had to be there. Okay, right. That was a great contract. Yeah. Um, And uh, then, you know, joining COE more or less at the same time, I could combine very easily both activities. So I was incredibly happy and taking the best of being a flute player, playing in these two orchestras with the conductors, you know, who conducted COE Mm -hmm. and learning and eating like a sponge every single word. Harnocko was telling to the orchestra during the rehearsals. And I remember in in playing Mozart operas for Harnocko, sometimes the flutes are not playing for 20, 25 minutes. I was literally hypnotized Mm. by Harnocko. I remember I I couldn't get away of looking at him, of his intensity and his unbelievable musicality on top of his historical determination
0: to achieve, you know, the famous Harnogor style we all know today. Mm. I mean, outside of opera, with COE, there is actually on YouTube, and I watched it the other day, quite an old documentary about him recording the Beethoven symphonies with COE, uh, in which you appear as first flute. And yeah, his rehearsal style and the metaphors that he came up with were just extraordinary. And the vitality and the energy that he gets to play those Symphonies that everybody would have played you know dozens of times before. Um, what a great musician. What a privilege to play for him, I would expect.
1: he uh, was in a once in a lifetime opportunity. actually, when I arrived at the Zurich Opera Orchestra, I was so not impressed. it was much more than that mm. he He really. Did show me what music could be in my yes. life. Oh. I mean, it was this kind of new way of looking at possibilities in my life. Mm. It was The things he was asking as, as you mentioned, were so obvious at one at you know, first, but I would never thought about them, because mm. I don't have his genius. <laughs> <laughs> and um, So as soon as I started playing for him in Zurich. I spoke with several musicians at the Chamber of Europe and with the management. And I just had this vision that, you know, Harnoco and COE could be an explosive story. Mm. And uh, with, with the help of Alice Harnoco, his wife, and June Meganis-Hall, the manager of COE at the time, and, and one or two players, we we pretty much pushed him to accept a trial week with COE because he was not very interested and um, the first week ever he conducted with COE he was in Vienna uh, in the concert house and an old Beethoven program. We started with uh, Beethoven 8, mm-hmm. then Beethoven Violin Concerto with Gidon Kremer, they were very good friends at the time, and then Beethoven Pastoral. Mm-hmm. And I remember we we rehearsed in a small room in the concert house. The main hall was not not free. And Hanako, of course, asked for like six or eight rehearsals just for one concert at the mm-hmm. time. He then changed, but I mean, at the beginning, you know, it was it was like the in '85 or something like this. '85, 80, '86, and I remember this first rehearsal. He started with Beethoven eight. So quite straightforward first movement. And the orchestra played immediately so differently <laughs> uh, than with other fantastic conductors we were playing with. Meaning Claudio Bado, Lauren Mazel, Salty, you know, we mm. were playing with these kind of conductors. But after 30 seconds with Harnoco, I'm not saying it was better at all but he was honestly so different yeah absolutely unbelievable it would have been such a good answer to the people who are sometimes asking you what but what are you actually doing as a conductor (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) Are, are you following the orchestra i remember once in america a very charming lady came you know of a certain age backstage and say oh it was a wonderful concert Thierry you know the way you followed the orchestra was amazing
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> So sometimes we hear these stupefying comments i love it
0: yes you know, but,
1: but you know the fact the orchestra see, we was playing at a very high level with Abado, Mazel, Salti, and suddenly in less than one minute the sound was completely different yeah. with Harnoco in a small room not even in a concert hall and then he started to rehearse and he was a little bit embarrassed, I remember, because of course he was conducting already great orchestras like his own orchestra, Consentus Musicus, Zurich Opera Orchestra. And he started conducting Munich Philharmonic and some Vienna Philharmonic. He did, you know, all the Mozart concertos with Gidon Kremer and, yeah. but the CEO he had this level, still has actually today, you know, of, you know, you have to say, immediately something absolutely crucial to have the players reacting. Mm. Because the technical level, the ensemble level, the homogeneous uh, attitude is so much there from the beginning that his way of rehearsing metaphorically was for us, you know, something incredibly inspiring Mm. and motivating. But I remember that he didn't have, have to say anything about togetherness or even style, you know, what he, what he looked with, with us. It was really the depth of the sound or the lightness or the something etherical or, you know, he was sometimes naming animals. I remember he said, <laughs> no, the, the speed of the spiccato is like, you have a puma in your neck and you are just running away. You know, he was rehearsing this way. Mm. So if, if you were not a musician and you heard a bit of his rehearsals, You said, what is he talking about? And for us, it was a fantastic lesson that music is not only music, music is a representation of the world. Mm. That was something very special for us to realize as a young, very ambitious, positively ambitious, and a little bit arrogant sometimes, orchestra.
0: I've read online an interview that you did that said that the second moment that your life changed, the first one being the minute you put that recorder in your mouth, the second moment was when you took an amateur choir rehearsal and you're quoted as saying, as a joke, uh, and because you still weren't interested in conducting in your early 30s. So was that the very start of your, your sudden change of interests?
1: Yeah, I mean... As I said yes to you your two questions a few minutes ago, yes. I was always like symbolically interested in one day why not being a conductor. But I've mm-hmm. never done anything for this. I, I didn't even study with a you know with a mentor or whatever. I was just observing, 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 but without any plan. Yeah. I mean I was so deeply happy as a flute player that I think I could have waited many more years without making the step but it mm. was in me and then yeah I had uh, my old te- music teacher um, from college here in Switzerland was a very good choir conductor in Switzerland and he he, he got sick and he phoned he told me of oh, the city and nobody was free to take over a rehearsal
0: yeah.
1: and with two pieces uh, I had never sung and never of course conducted and also never played it was a sound by Florent Schmitt, the French composer, and another sound by Felix Mendelssohn, number 42, Vider Hirsch. And, you know, I was free that evening just, and I said, yeah, why not? But, you know, I've never conducted. And (laughs) luckily it was an amateur choir, and they were like five weeks before their annual concert. So they were pretty much ready. But it was really the same effect I had when I started playing the recorder 20 years before.
0: Mm.
1: Like, how is it possible to perceive life completely in another direction all of a sudden? I mean, Mm. is it a movie? Like, you know, you have (laughs) movie cut, you know, it's white. And then without transition is dark or the opposite.
0: Mm.
1: And it, it was really like a movie cut in my life. Even
0: even you went from a black and white movie and then it suddenly goes into bright Technicolor. Yeah, that change of yeah. Well, uh, absolutely. What's, yeah, what's happened here? Yeah.
1: And um, I remember I I went home uh, after that and I said to my wife, I want to be a conductor. <laughs> and uh, she probably heard it before, so she said, Oh yeah, great. You know. And then we had a normal evening and all fine and I... <laughs> yeah. you know, and then um, the, this choir conductor did not get better. So two weeks after, he asked me to actually do the concert with an orchestra, but I had a COE tour. So mm. I realized that if I actually wanted to be a conductor, I just, I was dying to take this opportunity. So I phoned COE, explained the situation, and it was like two, three weeks before the tour. So, you know, I was... Mm. It was not very collegial, but still they really understood and we found a very good flute player. And everybody was happy. And I did th- this concert. It was in, in a big cathedral with these two sons. It was something uh, very impressive for me. I remember I was so nervous, I was trembling. I didn't know how to give the first upbeat. I mean, I, my, because my wrist was shaking. <laughs> you know, <it> was... <laughs> and then the, the director of this orchestra, told me, listen, next year is the 30th anniversary of the orchestra I founded and I'm going to retire and I want you to take over. Yeah. Um, do you want to to do this? And he said, I, I've seen you conducting 10 minutes and I think you, know, you have a lot to learn. But from what I saw in your personality, I think you should do it. I said, well, let me think about it. He said, no, 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 I, <laughs> I'm in a hurry. So I said, OK, then, yes. <laughs> And um, that was my first experience as a conductor. I took this orchestra called the Collegium Academicum Mm. here in Geneva, Switzerland. And I transformed the orchestra into the Geneva Chamber Orchestra uh, for five or six years. And then I got my first uh, job outside Switzerland. I was a conductor of the um, uh, Netherlands National Ballet Orchestra in Mm. Amsterdam.
0: What a wonderful story to go from that very first rehearsal and then it, blossomed from there and and often i hear on these podcasts you know can i think about it and the answer comes back no uh <laughs> it, this happens quite this happens quite a lot um, oh really so so during this time i'm assuming you were you were conducting more and more playing the flute less and less were you asking people that you knew like Hanoncore or robardo for advice or i mean you say that you were observing observing uh, often people ask me you know who taught you and i said well actually the biggest teachers of all was sitting in the cbs over 22 years watching rattle nelson's oromo boulez yeah, you know, thierry fisher mark elder whoever come and conduct and and observing and learning you learn so much that way but were there mentors did you have classes or studies at all
1: so during the action i thought there were mm.
0: uh,
1: and actually they they kept mentors really yeah. but Absolutely not in the way I thought they would be. Okay. Um, They kept very strong musical mentors and like thinkers and visionary thinking men Mm. who are still influencing me when I think about it. In terms of being on the podium alone Absolutely nothing. I mean, maybe for some other people, yes. I'm not saying any truth, of course. But Mm. in my case, uh, I felt all of a sudden very, very alone. Mm. uh, In complete incapacity to express what I wanted. And of course, like conductors of the age, I was being used to be at the highest level in, in orchestra playing, but not at a conductor at all. I was then talking too much. I was moving inappropriately, asking things I was not showing. Hmm. And you know, of course I did I did all these mistakes. Yes. But that was my way to learn. But honestly, to your answer, Mike, I cannot say I learned how to conduct observing these people. But I can still tell you what Abado told us in a Rosini overture for the sound he wanted. What um, even I played, was I was, I was in Hamburg, Bruckner 4 with Sinopoli, once mm. in a concert. And, you know, I remember what they asked to the orchestra in terms of colors, in terms this this dimension that you cannot imagine it's possible. What they asked me to do with my flute, which I was not even aware I could produce this kind of sounds when I got up in, in the morning. And then suddenly it's one o'clock in the afternoon and you've done something you were asked by a conductor that you would never have imagined you would even try in doing this so this dimension yes hmm. i mean abado arnon oh, I mean, who i could really speak for hours about what they were
0: yeah.
1: asking us and they they were they were of being there you know it was fascinating with abado i talked a little bit about conducting but not so much because as you probably know, I don't know if you had the luck to play for him, but um, he, he was a very mysterious man mm. and he achieved his miracle concerts without <laughs> we understood how. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why he was a genius. Yeah. Because he could not even explain himself because he was a genius conductor. And like genius, they don't really know how they do it. They just do it. Mm. I remember once I had talking about genius, a rehearsal with Marta Argerich, the first time I conducted her in Paris, Volker 53, Three, for uh, the piano concerto. Yes. And second moment you have all these variations and you have to make the transitions. And uh, I, I never did the concerto. So it was a little bit, you know, mm. risky to conduct her for the first time, <laughs> yeah.
0: with, like her piece. You know? <laughs> and daunting, yeah, yeah
1: yeah and then in the middle of the second movement one of the transition uh, very honestly i i i missed it i didn't understand what she was doing and i was a problem instead of you know so i stopped i was a little bit embarrassed but i mean you know here we are and i wasn't yeah. going to continue so i said sorry Malta. can you just tell me how you do you know how you how you do the transition and can we do it again and usually Okay, yeah, sure, My story. yeah. So, here I play this, and then I arrive at the low F, and then back, and we do that. Okay, it's very clear. Do you, do you get it? Yes, yes, get it. Get it. Okay, that's rational. Yes. And daughter, she said, she looked at me with like an incredibly depressed face, you know, and she was like shaking her at cemetery. I don't know. And first reaction, I said, what? I mean come on she could help and tell me something and a second later i realized that hearing from Marta Argerich i don't know
0: Mm.
1: i understood that some things we don't have to know something we just have to do and don't even understand as a conductor you know when you accompany such a genius or in transition, and I learned in these three words, in these few seconds, I felt very embarrassed in front of the orchestra. How to let it go,
0: mm.
1: because there are things coming from the orchestra. As a flute player, you had the, the impression at the beginning. I had the impression I had to conduct everything.
0: Yes, which is that's true.
1: Ridiculous, yeah. you know. Mm. The more experience you have, is that if the orchestra is very good, even average good, you know you can let it go a lot. And then mm. you just, I mean, if you play 20 years in orchestra, I don't have to tell you what a conductor doesn't have to do to let it sound. Mm. But you know, I didn't understand this dimension until Martha Argerich told me this, that she didn't know. Mm. <laughs> it was very special. And Abado, it was the same. Sometimes we asked him questions during rehearsals, and he was looking at us with his enigmatic, enigmatic look, Say. Okay, yeah but, and we and the feeling we were asking the moon, you know, hmm. but still, the concerts, as soon as he arrived on stage, honestly, like, we were all at the highest possible concentration, giving every single night with him the very best we all had individually and collectively, hmm. and we played you know, I played eleven years in of your Europe playing more or less 50 concerts a year at least with uh, Abado. We were touring the entire world all the time. And I, I honestly can say that I remember one concert out of the maybe nearly 200 concerts I played for him. that I thought, well, what's going on with him? And then we heard that he had a flu and he had fever and he still decided to, to do the concert. Mm. But every every single concert, this kind of genius, they have this magnetic way of arriving and without he even shows the first upbeat you already know it's
0: going to be a tremendous concert i don't know you know that's true i've had that in uh on many occasions um with the three music directors that i played for in birmingham with simon rattle and sakura and andrews nelson's that you know you would they would walk out and you think, oh, here we go. And they haven't even done anything. They've just bowed. You just get this, <laughs> I don't know what it is, a smell in the air. And uh, yeah, I love yeah. what you said about control. Somebody used a metaphor, uh, which I love about the controlling of an orchestra, which is that we're holding the reins on a horse, on a thoroughbred horse. And most of the time, you only just need to hold those reins between your finger and thumb and just enjoy the ride. It's only occasionally do you need to grab the reins and... Stop the horse running after a hare or a rabbit or a a dog um, <laughs> yeah uh, but most of the time it, w- in, when you're conducting a great orchestra you're you're gently steering you're gently nudging and you're just enjoying the, most of the time you're just enjoying the ride um, and I actually think that's a really good analogy um for as you said, not trying to be too controlling um, and, be, and also realizing that it's a journey that could go in any direction you know when you're talking about mar agarrick you know there, there are times when you just have to go with the flow and feel it and exactly yeah
1: i agree with every word you said mm. but let me add one thing yes it also depends of the repertoire yes
0: yes yeah yeah
1: um but for most of the 19th century and uh until yeah it depends
0: yes that, if you're that, doing con- if you're doing contemporary music you have to hold the reins yeah. a lot
1: a lot firmer absolutely uh, and if you're doing early classical music like Haydn, mozart you don't have to conduct but you have to rehearse a lot mm, to get yes. what you want articulation yeah. speed of um, you know bow and colors and contrast and all that all these radical sounds you know appearing um, you have to rehearse a lot but you don't have to conduct and if you look at you you told me you were looking at videos of Hanako rehearsing for our Beethoven cycle I was in it it was channel four at the time who filmed that Yes. Um, his rehearsals were so intense.
0: Uh, You just mentioned repertoire. If I look at the orchestras you've been boss of, are you a principal conductor? Uh, of the Ulster Orchestra from 2001 to 2006 and then straight from there to the BBC National Orchestra of Wales as principal conductor. The BBC has a connection with Ulster but and then obviously when you were with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales it's a BBC orchestra. The repertoire that you conduct for the BBC is not always standard. Um, How did you get on with uh, some of the repertoire choices that you had to conduct with those two orchestras and um, did you have much saying, sort of putting the programs together in a way that you, you know you could do some of the weird and wonderful and the brand new that the BBC expects uh, you to conduct and then also do some more things that you would mu- like to conduct with those orchestras how did it work? Um, in the Ulster Orchestra I had
1: pretty much the freedom I, I wanted first of mm. all it was my, my first real job because I had this small orchestra in Switzerland and then in Amsterdam I did mainly ballet yeah. which I, I learned a lot, but my, my uh, time with the Earth Orchestra was the very first time I was confronted to, to what it means to be a, a conductor, you know, every other week, you know, in front yes. of the orchestra and, and conducting different repertoire. In the BBC Wales, it was very different, although I had a very understanding management, you know, really wanting to to help me growing in 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 different kind of periods of the musical music history. Many times you are absolutely right. Um, the director of the orchestra told me, "Yeah, oh, well, that'd be so good to do." But you know, I'm just looking, you know, at the what the other BBC orchestras are doing, and actually, mm-hmm. this piece is already being played three times this season by BBC Scottish, BBC Symphony, and Manchester is actually doing it too. So you know, it was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But um, it was not a problem for me, because I was, and I still am, but I mean, especially at at the beginning of of my conducting career, incredibly curious. Mm. And I kind of find the excitement with pretty much everything I decided to accept to conduct. So in BBC Wales in Cardiff, I did conduct a lot of contemporary music, or completely unknown music to me all things would, you would never do with no. normal orchestra, like complete martyrdom Dom, uh, by Debussy, you know, which, you know, who would do that in concert in, in Britain, you know? Mm. You can do this in a studio concert <coughs> with, a, with the orchestra. That's fantastic. Or we did in the proms, um, La Transfiguration by Messiaen, which is an unbelievable piece of nearly two hours, hours of music. Without interruption, we needed 10 days of rehearsal. Mm. and we were 350 on stage so these kind of things you know it was unique opportunities also even if if i could not really conduct Brahms, Mahler and etc but that was not the place you know if Mm. you if you are in a in a BBC orchestra you know you are you have to serve uh, the the public idea you know public service
0: uh, organisation, um, it's, it's, it's the role of the BBC. It's exciting, isn't it? I've conducted all of the BBC orchestras and when the phone rings, I mean, I'm, I've not been a boss of an orchestra yet, but when the phone rings from the BBC, you think, right, what's this going to be? What am I co- going to be conducting this time? Because it's, as you say, <laughs> it's normally contemporary or music that's been lost and forgotten. Um, I don't think I've really ever conducted that much standard repertoire with any of the orchestras, uh, the BBC orchestras mm-hmm. at all. Uh, but it, as you say, it's exciting. You, you, you know, and then they send you through a big envelope with all of these scores, and you think, "Wow, well, you know, nobody, this probably hasn't been out of a library for fifty years, and now we're going to do it." And it's exciting. But as you say, o- only with a, a public service organisation like the BBC, or a, or in Germany, you know, with a radio organization like WDR or NDR, do you have this possibility to play this stuff? Because because if you were just doing it with the ticket sales, you know, it would be you wouldn't sell tickets.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. Very enjoyable, honestly. Just yeah. to jump to one unknown story to another. I, I liked it very much. I learned a lot from that.
0: Uh, I, did some, I did some digging around um, and worked out that for a two-year period, Thierry, between 2009 and 2011, you were boss in Cardiff, Wales, Nagoya, Japan, and Salt Lake City, the Utah Orchestra, Symphony Orchestra, in the United States. So you were boss of three orchestras in three different continents, um, which means fulfilling your contract with all three of those and probably fitting in guest conducting work in between. But then you're dealing with bureaucracy, you're dealing with you know hiring and firing, you're dealing with next year's programmes. How on earth did you manage to do that between those three cities? And that's without talking about the, the stress and strain of travelling to get between them all. How did you do that? Wow, well, great. I-
1: I was really enjoying it, to be honest, <laughs> uh, immensely.
0: Yeah.
1: But I knew it was just for a short period of time. I mean, for two years, but um, yeah. uh, for me, arriving in the States was talking about repertoire,
0: yeah.
1: much needed if we take in consideration what we've just said about, you know, the public service programming of BBC. Mm. Uh, because when you are a music director in America, you are, really the boss of everything so you you do the entire programming you have regular meetings with the marketing with the education with even the finances you know giving them priorities in the development you have to you know fundraise so it it was fascinating to come from a bbc (laughs) orchestra (laughs) to an orchestra where you are actually at the helm of all the departments of of the orchestra Mm. But it was not, these two years, as as heavy it was, I don't remember these years as something, being, you know, something heavy on the shoulders. Uh Uh, I just went from one place to the other and, you know, jumped and was excited by the radical changes of being on one side of the planet one week on Saturday night. And then on Tuesday morning, you rehearse on another continent. Hmm. I, I thought it was very challenging and I'm glad it didn't last for you know ever. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was it was some something I realized and it helped me to understand uh the different mentalities. You know, being both in America and in Japan is radically different. Uh-huh. It was not my backgrounds, and it helped me to to develop this notion that you know very well as well as a conductor that when you stand in front of a conductor, you don't have to be obsessed of getting the highest level you want, but the highest level of what you perceive people can do. Mm. And which is sometimes even better of what it is what you want, you (laughs) know, surprisingly. So this helped me to develop this kind of approach of, you know, how to let the people grow in the, um, concepts I was throwing at the different orchestras in terms of cultural concepts.
0: Did you have any downtime at all? Um, no. <laughs> that's a short and swift answer. Um, but let's say you did have a day off and in between rehearsals in Utah or in Nagoya or in Cardiff, what would you do? I mean, were you then on the phone or emailing to the other two orchestras, or did you just get a chance some day to just you know? walk in a park or you know sit in a restaurant for far too long or do you know what i mean there must have been some way that you just stopped for 24 hours occasionally
1: no of course even 48 hours but i mean usually i was either sleeping and recovering (laughs) or uh yeah going to restaurants i'm a keen jogger you know i it's something i'm doing for many many years and keeps me alert and brings me the possibility to enjoy all these things of going to restaurants and drinking <laughs> still keep, keeping as fit as possible yeah. um, so no I, I I needed especially when I was in in Cardiff or in or in Salt Lake to go outside and run or hike or ski in Utah because it's of course wonderful there mm. uh, in Japan it was different when I had uh, one or two three days in Japan I was usually staying in the hotel and just working the whole day and catching up with organization stuff and having a great Japanese meal in the evening. So, you know, it depends where you are, of course, as well. But the need of being outside has always been crucial.
0: When you come to learn a new score, how do you go about it? Do you have a set system? And do you mark your scores with pencils, different colored pencils, or are you one of the group of conductors who don't write anything in at all?
1: (laughs) There was an evolution since I started to conduct and and now. Mm. At the beginning, I was marking everything. I'm writing less and less because you realize that what matters is how to get the best of an orchestra. With the experience, it's somehow in your DNA. So I don't want to be extreme saying the wrong thing, but mm. a little bit like, you know, the less you do, the better results you will get. If you have the experience and that you, your body language is showing to be there for something at the same time, very secure for the orchestra, that they can trust that they will have what they need in these certain moments, in certain transitions, and then they then they are free to do it, but they are not only free, they are challenged to be free. Yes. So you know, it's not sometimes you hear I was the same when I was an orchestra player. I said, Yeah, oh I just want the conductors to let me play.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, but in this case, if it would be only as simple as that, then it means you just need somebody to give you the downbeats here and there, and then everybody plays. But what I realized very soon is if you challenge people to to play the way they want, it's exciting. And this I learned being a flute player for all these amazing conductors I was lucky enough to play for. Mm. You play freely, but within what they challenge you to do. Yes. So I remember some pianissimo I played, playing for Abado in Rossini Overtures. Like sometimes I remember I played so soft for him because he was just, looking for soft, I don't even know how he showed it, that the harmonics came because <laughs> <laughs> there was so little air that suddenly the sound disappeared. And that that was something very special. So as a conductor is what, you know, of course I'm urged and I feel more and more this urgency to motivate people to do things without being... Too detailed. Except yes. as we said before, if you conduct Schoenberg variations or a piece by Xenakis or or, or Boulez, whatever you have to really conduct. But mm. to come back to your questions now, if I conduct, I did a Mahler cycle in the in in America over two years to celebrate the seventy fifth of anniversary of the orchestra, and there were a few Mahler symphonies I did never conduct before, mm. and I surprised myself that. I was preparing them not the same way I prepared the one I already had conducted several times. You know, you mark the essential stuff to create alertness in your brain. Yes. You know, and not to not to have the feeling, oh my gosh, where are we going? Because Mm. you know, if you conduct a Mahler symphony and you don't know where you're going, so. But now I'm working much more on the big arc. Especially if we talk about this kind of repertoire, uh, so I need to to mark less, but still I mark the basic stuff. Yeah, tempo transitions until they become so obvious in my DNA brain and and desire. You know, I noticed as a conductor if you don't have this desire uh, to make things happen, you know. <laughs> Everybody's losing its time and it's not, you know, servicing the, the music. But then I also learned that it's one thing to have the desire, but if you have too much desire, it's also <laughs> too productive. Yes. So that's why it's endless process of learning. But um, I realized these last years that I be I was a conductor who was moving a lot at the beginning, and of course very inappropriately most of the time. And now I'm I I Hardly move. I remember I I went to the Cleveland Orchestra last year and um, (laughs) and there was a reviewer writing. Um, Well, Fisher hardly moved at all. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true because with this kind of orchestra, you know, we played La Mer by Debussy, you know, he was doing. And we, you know, you just, you know, you're there and they know you there and you know they're there. And with this kind of orchestra, you know, the less you do, you know, sometimes. So I did evaluate a lot. And now I'm connecting without baton as well, which has changed my technique a lot.
0: Mm.
1: And um, yeah, it's, you know, I tell you this today. And if we speak in two years, I say exactly the opposite. That's the beauty of
0: it. The- <laughs> Thierry, it is 10 question time. And as ever, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the noise
1: of silence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I hate the noise of stress. So give me a noise of stress. Okay, now I can explain you why I said this. Yes. Of course, is because both noises are unable to be heard.
0: Mm, that's true
1: and once the silence it's an effort to listen to the silence and it brings you a lot mm. and it's not an effort to listen to the stress in your energies, in your chakras in your, you know organs, but it's very disturbing and it's so turbulent and disturbing
0: but both are inaudible if you had 24 hours free what would you like to spend it doing? I would definitely
1: go in the nature, mm. being Swiss, possibly at the top of a mountain, not too far from Geneva, being as close as possible between the two worlds, the earthy world world and the celestial world.
0: Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear?
1: I would have an answer in two parts. Mm. First, the conductors I've played for who are not there anymore, and then Mm. conductors who have influenced me a lot and I have not known them. Mm. So I would say Abado, Boulez and Harnoncourt. And for the conductors, I hadn't had the time because we were absolutely not, you know, alive on the same time. I would say... Burt Wengler and Carlos Kleiber.
0: And who would be a favorite current conductor?
1: Yeah, there are many Gergiev, Peter Edwisch. Mm. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> either you'd say all of them or you just just to say two or three, but no, Gergiev, Edwisch, and um, Blomstedt
0: what is the hardest work you have ever conducted
1: okay i'll give you two pieces emotionally the seven last words on the cross by sofia gubaidulina mm. for strings cello and accordion mm. and technically and also emotionally but not for the same reasons Messian, la transfiguration de notre Seigneur Jésus-Christ.
0: Because that's, um, it's such a long conduct. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's crazy. Mm. Um, and also, what he says, you know, whatever you are believer or not, I am. Sometimes I'm not like uh, you know, uh, a believer who goes to church or whatever, but I am influenced by this, uh, liturgical pieces,
0: mm.
1: they, 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 mean a lot to me and to conduct La Transfiguration, honestly, I lost my sleep, um, <laughs> for about a week before the concert
0: wow. in
1: London, in the proms. Yeah. Okay. And, um, when I thought I was falling asleep, like the night before the concert, I was having dreams, like half dreams, like to turn the pages of the score, I had to run from the right side of the stage, holding the page with two hands and running to the other side of the, <laughs> the stage. Wow. Just symbolizing how heavy this piece you know, was. Uh, so um, these two
0: pieces, and whilst I remember, because I love her music, what is it about the Goodbye Dooliner piece that you found so emotional?
1: It's that an hour before the concert, It was I was conducting the Chamber Orchestra of Europe in Berlin. Uh, we had this residence there, and sometimes, you know, uh, we were a few conductors in the orchestra. We had the, the privilege to conduct our colleagues sometimes. Oh. Um, one hour before the concert, my wife phoned me to tell me that our third song was just born wow wow and in the seven last words you have one of the word is mother this is your son <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow <laughs> how, how amazing
1: <laughs> yeah no that was uh that was
0: emotion yeah it was special when traveling abroad to conduct, which you've done quite a lot of, Thierry, may I add, what item could you not leave home without? My jogging shoes and Mm -hmm.
1: my GPS and my pulse sensor to go running. All this together is part of my balance.
0: What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? To answer
1: to your question to play this great game, I would probably say I could go without the rigidity of
0: unions. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a player, and then as somebody who was a conductor and a player, or a player and a conductor, and then now just a conductor, it dawned on me throughout that process that actually we're in show business. And unions, they put up so many barriers so often. Um. Yeah,
1: I, I have a great anecdote to to give a metaphor to my answer, and maybe you know it. Is a conductor, you know, conducting, and it's it's the end of the rehearsal, and then of course the union steward, you know, gets up, and the concertmaster, you know, comes yeah. and wants to shake the hand of the conductor no, no, but ladies and gentlemen, I just have one more thing to say. I mean, no, sorry, Maestro, it's over, you know, we have to respect, you know, we have an agreement with the union. No, it's very short, it's just one thing. I mean, no, terribly sorry, see you tomorrow. Okay. The conductor, oh, God. Okay, next morning, entire orchestra arrives, right, 10 o'clock. Well, what I just wanted to tell you yesterday is that Two days' rehearsals is cancelled.
0: Very good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, oh, I wish I had the guts to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure it's a true story, but apparently... (laughs) It doesn't matter. I just wish I had the guts to do it. (laughs) (laughs) What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? The problem I have with this question is that
1: I so much feel in a continuous learning process as a conductor Mm. that I am still thrilled by every experience or project I have, which is like, I reconsider it as a new thing every time. So that I have the feeling, I mean, to answer to you, you know, with a little bit of provocation, (laughs) I I would love to answer, I would love to be a conductor because, because conductor is something new. Every single concert is a miracle. Mm. And true. therefore, uh, therefore, you're reinventing your job every single project.
0: If the world was to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I would... A fast.
1: You would not eat? No. <laughs> Why is that? To be more prepared to go to the next... From one world to the
0: other, perfectly allowable answer. I've allowed I've allowed everybody's answers from bread and water to <laughs> um, truffle soup in a fi- in a Michelin-starred restaurant. So, yeah, to fast is a perfectly. But good I
1: can to- explain because yeah. you know, if you if you know you have to go to the other world like in a few hours, mm-hmm. I simply cannot imagine having the desire to eat anything. I would prepare philosophically, symbolically, you know, just to so I would probably just
0: not eat and not um, drink that, and that's and that's your choice and that's perfect um <laughs> as has been the whole hour and a quarter that we've been chatting Thierry I've had a great time and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon it was great talking to you Mike very nice to to uh,
1: share this moment with you
0: A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who can count Bernard Hightink and Sir Adrian Bolt among his mentors and teachers. His career has been dominated by his work either in ballet or with the BBC Concert Orchestra. Until then, bye bye!